I'm really happy to be here today with Peter Berkman. Uh, Peter is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Digital Life, and he's also the editor of the journal there called the Dia Noeticon. And um, most interesting to me is he's performed, he's written and performed a drama at the University of Notre Dame on Marshall McLuhan and Romano Guardini. And Romano Guardini is the topic of our conversation today. So um, just as a little background, uh, the, a few years ago, actually maybe just a couple of years ago, one of the viewers of my Barfield series sent me a video of Peter <clears throat> talking about Romano Guardini and said, this is very similar to what you've been doing on your channel for several years. And, uh, and I just was amazed at the confluence of ideas. I mean, how we've been talking about these things since the channel started almost five years ago. And then I find out that Romano Guardini was writing about these things back at the turn of the century. I probably could have saved myself a lot of time if I'd read his book. Um, <clears throat> so Romano Guardini is a 20th century theologian. Um, and he particularly, the part that's particularly interesting to me is his delineation of the difference between oppositions and contradictions. And that was what I asked Peter to especially address today because Guardini wrote a lot and is very important figure in 20th century theology. Um, but so we can't possibly go over all of it, but th that was the particular part that I wanted to discuss today. And, uh, but Peter, before we get started, maybe you want to give just a little bit of background on how you grew up and how you came to be interested in people like Gordini. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of those people, like, I think you said in your video, he's kind of like one of the world's best kept secrets because it's very hard to find material on him. Yeah, it's so hard to find material on him in English that I actually had to make it myself. <laughs> he was a uh, an Italian uh, man born in, born in Italy, uh, and his family moved to Germany. There's sort of a, a well-off family. They moved to Germany. Uh, his dad was a you know big merchant guy. Um, I but I, I will explain a bit about me. But I, I want to talk about the the best kept secret sort of thing uh that is guardini um just like you i was like man i i wish i had come across this earlier this would have <laughs> saved a, a lot of confusion for me uh over the years but um yeah so a bit about me uh i am 35 uh i'm, a, I'm an adult man it's pretty cool uh i'm a my main job i'm a musician i play in a band called Anamanaguchi. And I've been doing that now for about 20 years. I started that in high school. Uh, I grew up in Chappaqua, New York, which is about, you know, an hour outside of New York City. And uh, yeah, I was raised in a like sort of, you know, non-practicing Catholic family where, uh, you know, I I say non-practicing, but my mom was a CCD teacher. I assisted her there. I went through all the sacraments and stuff uh, like confirmation, et cetera. But yeah, when I went off to college, all that stuff sort of um, stopped for me. Um, so I went to NYU, which is actually where I first encountered the stuff um, surrounding Guardini without being aware of it. Um, I studied music technology, but at NYU, all the music schools are not situated in their own uh, like arts school. They're actually in uh, the education school called Steinhardt, which is like the liberal liberal arts sort of center at NYU. 
And as part of a requirement for the degree, you had to take uh, a course that was called Performance Art in Western Civilization. And it was in that course that uh, I first read people like Heidegger and was introduced to people like Marshall McLuhan uh, for the first time by our professor, uh, Dr. Tom McFarlane. Um, and Heidegger, I had to say, was really dense, really confusing. And when I did understand it, it just seemed completely wrong. Um, and the reason I bring that up uh, is maybe about 10 or so years later, I rediscovered the work of Marshall McLuhan and got sort of dove headfirst into it because everything that he said about technology and human beings relationship to it um just seemed so so relevant at at like the very confusing times of 2015 and 2016 uh in the united states um i was like wow this is super prescient and as i kept reading i discovered that McLuhan uh was a devout catholic and the uh the work that he had done on the middle ages uh, and like the trivium uh, was very much like the basis of all of the insights that he was able to come up with in uh, in his own time. So that amazed me. But back to Heidegger. Um, eventually, reading McLuhan led me to Guardini uh, because of stuff that Pope Francis. Uh, so Guardini uh, has been influential behind the scenes. This is why he's the best kept secret to every pope since Vatican II. Uh, the first pope of Vatican II, Paul VI, um, wanted to make him a cardinal, but at the time he was too old uh, for it and sick, and he he refused. Um, declined, I guess was the better word. Uh, pope John Paul, same Pope John Paul II quoted him a couple times. Uh, pope Benedict XVI uh, was an actual student of Guardini's in Germany in the 20th century. And then Pope Francis uh, went to Germany in the 1980s to write a dissertation on Romano Guardini that he had to abandon. So um, it was upon discovering Guardini in Pope Francis's uh, encyclical letter on, on sort of the environment and humanity and technology, which is called Laudato Si. Uh, there's a chapter in there called The Human Roots of the Ecological Crisis where he introduces the term technocratic paradigm. Uh, and in that section, uh, Guardini is the footnote for every paragraph. And I was like, who is this Guardini guy? Everything he's saying uh, is so on point and uh, fresh and clear. Um, and when I <laughs> I dove into this, this man's biography and his life, uh, reading his letters to people, reading his memoirs which were all of these were only in german i had to use the help of computers and other people to to get these readable in english um i don't speak german uh although i do now read a bit of it uh but i discovered there <laughs> that guardini was in fact martin heidegger's senior peer at the university of freiburg in 1912 or so um and the work that we're going to be discussing today, uh, Guardini actually sent to a young Martin Heidegger um, as a sort of Easter gift. Um, 
to him in 1912. Uh, and he sort of <laughs> said, what do you think about this? Uh, I'm trying to discover what the mysterious spirit of Catholicism consists of. Uh, and, you know, he wished him a happy Easter. And uh, fast forward 30 years later, and Heidegger is, I believe, made the rector of the University of Berlin under Nazi rule. And Guardini is kicked out uh, from his faculty position and had to live in hiding under Nazi rule. So, uh, yeah. It was a a weird, weird thing that after se like 70 or so years later, really about 100 years later from that letter being sent, after the man receiving the letter is the one that we talk about in universities in the United States. And the man who sent the letter is something that I have to dig <laughs> and and spent an enormous amount of work on mostly thanklessly uh i should say uh you you are a, a welcome email uh that that has brought this back to the surface for me i haven't thought about gordini in in about a year um but yeah it, it this just goes to the 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 root that um there's something to the fact that maybe we'd rather hear the simpler version from heidegger uh, as opposed to the um, the more psychologically challenging reality that Guardini is presenting in his work. So, yeah, I guess... Uh, that, let me can... try something a little bit better here on this issue, because um, I want you to listen to something that you said. Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. And then I want you to listen to a very brief clip of Ian McGilchrist in a conversation that he had on my channel a couple of months ago. And um, let's see what we can make of, of this together. <clears throat> Great. Um, I'm gonna bring up a share screen here. And I think it's the other one of you that I want to look at here. <clears throat> this one right here, I believe this is it. We're going to listen to two minutes of you. Oh, boy. Guardini <laughs> uh, doesn't like these words, though. He says something has, has to be drawn out to actually fully account for that experience. And so is the sound good? Can you hear well? Yeah, I can hear it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give it to vouch for it as something that is ultimately real and not just woo, not ineffable. Um, so since mathematical proof can describe dead things um, just as well as it can describe live things, he wanted to split that difference and, and make that case. Um, this was very interesting, and I'll get to it later, but it actually was the other one I wanted to talk about. Okay. Sorry. Very That's sorry. That's fine. Is a phenomenon which is extended all throughout reality with a particular significance in the sphere of that which is living, which then takes on decisive importance in the sphere of what is personal. Um, and he talks about how this is a unity born in tension, uh, that they exist on an axis. And then he says, <clears throat> the concept of opposition acquires a purely and simply decisive significance from its distinction from that of contradiction. Yes and no, good and evil, being and non-being are not oppositions, but contradictory. They exclude each other. He who gives assent to one denies the other. 
The opposed also exclude from one another, but only relatively, with reference to a moment of their relation, the axis, the center. In the same way, it's absolutely wrong to mention poles in the face of contradictory elements. In the face of opposed determinations, one affirms, the other excludes. Exclusion, nevertheless, takes place in such a way as to become possible only by reference to that former determination. Therefore, to presuppose and co-signify it, but as its opposite. On the other hand, contradiction excludes in a pure and simple sense, and precisely in such a way that the positive part is determined by itself, not by the other thing. That is, the yes is determined by the yes, the good is determined by the good, and the being is determined by the being, while the no is not actually determined by the no, but is only determined by the yes. The evil only determined by the good. Non-being only determined by the being. That's where these privations receive their definition from the thing that they have reduced from. Um, and this, yeah. is, this is brilliant. Okay, so <clears throat> that's a quote from Gordini that you read, and it was <clears throat> such a nice tight quote. It's the reason I wanted to use that one. Great. But then here is the discussion that um, D.C. Schindler and, um, and I'm going to back this up to the part where I ask my question, I think. All right. Hopefully I got the right spot. Sorry, my, my landlord just got here and my dog is going oh. insane. <laughs> but that's okay. I, you I need can to do that. something? We can take a pause. No, no, that this will this will be fine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Union and division. But division can't embrace union and division. Love can embrace. Okay, we I didn't go far enough back. So could be used for artist. Um, and in that sense, I think that um I love what you say about the coincidence of opposites, Ian. That they don't, they don't come together equally. There are they're proportional. Um, but I do wonder. There is one opposite that seems to me it can't be that way, and that would be good and evil. Do you guys have anything to say about that? Well, well uh, yeah, I mean, to me, that is an example of what I'm saying. Um, <sighs> I mean, first of all, I, I'm, what I'm not saying, just to go back to something you just said, what I'm not saying is that when there is a coincidence of opposites, they are sort of asymmetrical in the sense that you can see one as big and the other as lesser. They are both important fully equally to one another. But in the end, in either the bigger picture in time or the bigger picture in space, one of them can always embrace the other. So, for example, union can embrace union and division, but division can't embrace union and division. Mm -hmm. Love can embrace hatred and perhaps redeem it. That's what Christians believe. But hatred can't embrace love. Good can embrace evil, take it up into itself and take it in and make it something else. But evil can't take good up into itself mm. in any way at all. It resists it and repels it. 
So I, I, that's the way I would answer that question, but I'd like to hear what David says. So this is the reason I wanted to talk with you. <laughs> this is the very reason I wanted to talk with you. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you've listened to any of Ian McGilchrist, but he, he talks a lot about this idea of the coincidence of opposites and how opposites, you know, it'd be a similar idea to some of what Bordini talks about in terms of the cre creativity of opposition or like in computer, computer lingo, opponent processing and how it, one thing strengthens the other. Um, so that's particularly why I wanted to ask him about this issue of good and evil, because it has always seemed to me that there are some things that can't live in that tension of opposites, like truth and falsehood. It seems like truth is on a, on a pillar someplace, on a rock, and falsehood is everything else. And if, if truth steps off the rock, it's somewhere out in this sea of falsehood now. And um and, and good and evil work that way. And that's why I asked him about it. So given his answer, can you, can that make sense with Guardini's ideas or is it in opposition to Guardini's ideas? Um, first of all, I, I, I want to say, I really, I really enjoyed uh, Dr. Michael Chris's uh, answer there, uh, particularly about good and evil, that good can embrace evil and perhaps mm -hmm. redeem it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh and love love can embrace hatred and redeem it correct correct yeah. um yeah so this this is a there there was another thing in in the talk i i actually listened to this uh entire uh recording that you made with uh with dr miguel chris and schindler uh i I'm, i love both of their work um and there was something that miguel chris said uh that i particularly enjoyed which was uh the illusion brought about by the introduction of the uh, definite article in Greek, <laughs> the beautiful, the, etc. Um, that there, uh, that it is through the introduction of abstractions that this confusion can take place. Um, so I want to answer your question more directly first. Um, and I've thought about it uh a bit in advance of this so guardini it, it's important to recognize that these concepts are are not necessarily new though at, at, for guardini's introduction of them in the in the 20th century they they seemed really new they seemed novel uh but their novelness was only because of how um it was cast in in like relevant language like it wasn't in greek but in german that he was uh speaking about these things um and in as relevant as possible german um so there is a platonic notion of opposition uh and maybe an aristotelian one and guardini begins his book on opposition uh, not by defining the term opposition, but by uh, taking one particular opposition and uh, emphasizing it. And it's the one of sensible and intellectual knowledge uh, that 
this is the prime example where um, one must presuppose the other. In Aristotle, uh, there's he says there, the soul can understand nothing without a phantasm. That is, the immaterial intellect doesn't work unless there are sensible uh, there is a sensible reality to point to, uh, to reference, to live in. <clears throat> and likewise, uh, the human being without the intellect is not necessarily a human being. Um, and uh, this opposition is very different from the Platonic notion of intellect and form. Uh, where reality, it's particularly the Neoplatonic notion that that the material world is something to transcend and get past entirely, um, where we can see the beautiful, etc., and exist in this realm separate somehow from uh, matter. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the reason I say this is... Uh, Aristotle has a very important term in Greek that he invented, uh, which is called entelechy. And this relates to um, what we're talking about here of oppositions, because uh, in, in English, we never really got a good translation of this word, entelechy, until Joe Sachs, uh, who's also a Heidegger scholar. Uh, he translated into English as being at work, staying itself. Being at work, staying itself. So that is a coincidence of opposites. How can something be both at work and stay itself? How can something persist despite undergoing change? This is a textbook example of an opposition uh, or an an antiological relationship, if we're talking Greek. So it implies a thing remaining the same, but also changing. So Guardini points at the problem uh, uh, between conflating oppositions and contradictions is, is like the problem of Western civilization. And, and I will get to this. Uh, I'll point to uh, something that he wrote near his death, where he's trying to explain this work and boil it down to the most important po points. But he basically says, when we conflate opposition and uh, contradiction, we we enter the most dangerous territory uh, as human beings. So, yeah, it was that quote that really stuck out to me because I that that's where we're at right now. In, yeah, in the world. <laughs> it is. So, what if we were to consider? Let's take this term, being at work, staying itself. What if we were to consider remaining the same good? And thus we resist all forms of change. Like we, we've made the decision that uh, staying itself is good. We equal, they equal each other. We decide that staying itself is good. Uh, and we resist all forms of change. But on the on the opposite, <laughs> what if we were to consider uh, remaining the same uh, evil? And we sought out all forms of possible change. 
for just for the fact of change being good um that is a a sort of one example of a clear conflation uh where one is at least in aristotle or guardini this would be an example of an opposition, not a contradiction. But what if we were to treat it like a real contradiction? What if we were to say, uh, these don't demand and presuppose one another. These, in fact, um, one has to go. <laughs> that's uh, that's where you get, I think, uh, real uh, violent uh behavior in in humanity this is a a thing where the whole is lost um guardini brings it uh ha has a really beautiful point on this in the beginning of, of his work he talks about um all of his examples are sort of related to the human body so he talks about um our self-experience of of a fingertip he's like Let's think about a round shape. Uh, but by analogy, as all of this is analogy, what in what way is it round? So he's talking about a fingertip as a round shape. But he says, in what way is it a kind of rounded shape? Well, it's a it's apparently an uninterrupted surface. You know, I'm able to put it on a string playing a guitar and uh, I can change what part of it I'm using. And then there's a bone inside of it, uh, which is sharp and not round. Um, <clears throat> but he even says, just staying at the fingertip, he says, but upon a closer look, that coherent surface is actually divided into groups of shapes, elevations and depressions, larger and finer folds. Uh, the connection is diminished and endangered, he says, upon a closer inspection. The small organs of the skin appear, then the cell groups, then the cells themselves, then the cellular parts, etc. Each of these structural levels means a danger, a reduction in context. If the consideration goes further, it reaches the area of the last fine structure of matter. In the end, the connection between the line, the surface, or the body would have disappeared. So, this is something Gordini wrote in 1925, and you can read that and think instantly about the nuclear bombs. It's uh, it's a little ridiculous <laughs> that uh, that this this amount of thinking was around at that time, and uh, the 20th century happened as it did. Um, yeah, so. <clears throat> Uh, that phrase, a reduction in context, I think is is fascinating um, <clears throat> because that's exactly what happens when science goes too far on the on the uh, mathematical side and reduces everything to measurement and taking it apart to the smallest possible component. And you lose context. And when you no longer have context, then what do the measurements even mean? You know, right. And and this was not something rather this was something guardini developed uh very very much in in his career uh he he used all of this as a basis to say other stuff and 
he wrote a book called Power and Responsibility, where um, he talked about, yeah, once you once you are able to grasp these uh, these finer details in matter, you you can gain mastery and control over them. But when when you've done that, at the sake of reducing it from its context, you're really in charge of something that you can't possibly be responsible for. Um, and that's an extreme danger. Um, and he, he phrases it beautifully in, in this book, The End of the Modern World. He says, contemporary man has not been trained to use power well. Even worse, uh, hold on, <laughs> the actual quote is, is amazing. He doesn't even seem loosely aware of the problem itself. Um, that's the, the real point here. <clears throat> so, I, but I really want to emphasize, uh, as I have a couple times here already, that there, there is something so not new about the work Guardini did. Um, and to be more specific, there's something very medieval about the work that Guardini has done here. Not only in its metaphysical underpinning, which is really Aquinas uh, and his understanding of Aristotle, uh, but even in the way that his writing is structured, uh, everything is very dependent and organic, uh, like structured in, in a way that uh, you sort of need to read the paragraph before. Uh, and he, he says like, in five paragraphs, something that could be summed up in one sentence, but he's he's breaking everything apart, sort of like the the person who looks into the finer folds of the fingertip, but he's doing it in such a way that everything is accountable. Everything has been thought through, that he's actually responsible for everything that he's saying. And that's, I think, a, the medieval talent uh, that was cultivated at the universities of the 12th and 13th centuries um, wh when they were invented. I mean, so uh, that, that, that all of this is, is very much not new. I think it is important. Uh, and it, it, I think it gives hope that by revisiting um, Aristotle and Aquinas through, through this lens, uh, we can sort of build an appropriate anthropology for a time where human beings coexist with machines uh, that are made by human beings and are capable of killing human beings. Um, Guardini even begins his book on oppositions by delineating them from rather delineating living things from machines he talks about how the this like tension of oppositions does not exist in uh in the machine where the parts are either next to behind on top or in sequence of one another uh, even today when when the machines are much more um sophisticated when they have um, cameras and microphones, various sensors, 
But these sensors are not organs. They meet organs from the people who build and control and uh, monitor the, the machine, but only to the point that the person monitoring the machine can be accountable for the, the scientific basis for these things that they may not understand. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize we were, I, I would, uh, sort of bring it there. Uh, but the, the world of good and evil today, I think, uh, that that's an important, uh, contradiction, but I think our time, the living and non-living is a, is a, that contradiction has taken on an extraordinary relevance because there's not an opposition between living and not living. Perhaps. So you're saying that, that living and non-living is a contradiction rather than an opposition. Yes. Okay. Well, first I'm going to say something that um, about the difference between opposition and contradiction. And then I want to go back and talk about that living and non-living thing. Um, <clears throat> I sent your video to a couple people back when I first watched it. And here's what I said to them. I said, um, I think this is a very important video, especially between about 47 and 57. And I'll, I'll put this in the, uh, in the description section of the video. <clears throat> he delineates between opposition, which would roughly be polar entities that bring life and variety and contradictions which must never be considered as polar unless we fall into the error of Jung and Goethe. Yes. That good has evil within it. He says, if we lose the distinction between opposition or creative tension and contradiction or the yes versus no good versus evil being versus non-being, we lose Western civilization. Now that's very strong. So let's go back to the living and non-living. Are you familiar with the work of Michael Levin? No, I'm not. Michael okay. Levin. Well, you will want to look at his work. He is a um, genius of the highest order in the, in the field of biology, developmental biology, um, synthetic biology. His, his main goal is to find a way to regenerate limbs to help people, which is great. Yep. He's gotten very far along on this. But on the way, as he's been doing all the research for this, he's come up with um, an acronym that he calls TAME, T-A-M-E. Uh, I can't remember what the T and the A stand for, but the M-E is mind everywhere. Because he's found in his research that... Um, intelligence or agency actually can go all the way down to the cellular level and and below and um and in thinking this through he's come up with a um a little i don't know what you'd call it a chart a graph something that moves from non-persuadability to persuadability and how much it takes to persuade an entity to move or to do something. And 
along this spectrum lie both living and non-living things. <laughs> the non-living being, so he says, for example, you can take a human being and you can attach um, bionic limbs or um, a mechanical heart. Um, we're getting to a place where we can add electrodes to the brain that make us human plus non-living things in us. But you can also take a Roomba conceivably sometime in the future and add living cells or living DNA or some sort of a thing that would um, bring some intelligence to the Roomba that it didn't have otherwise. And that the day is coming when everywhere along that spectrum, there will be something that is both living and non-living attached together. <laughs> so where does that put us with Gordini's ideas about living and non-living being a contradiction and that if it begins to live in the world of polar opposites, <clears throat> um, we've got problems. Yes. <laughs> we. I would argue that we don't need to add organic tissue to a Roomba to to already be there. Um, we we have satellites. We have computers. We McLuhan over, always took this sort of organic view of technology as being extensions of ourselves already. Um, he said, you know, they they can't be anything less than things that augment uh, human already existing human powers while uh, diminishing others at, at the cost or retrieving powers that we had forgotten and flipping in to uh, powers when pushed to their limits. So uh, these various technologies that we've surrounded ourselves with, uh, these artificial um, beings, these man-made constructions, uh, we have to discover what they are made of. Um, and the best way to discover what they're made of is to um, discover their effects on us. <clears throat> so broad broadly speaking, uh, the challenge in a world of digital technology in, in this digital environment is, is simply to remember how to be human. Um, it's, it's less an issue of the uh, figuring out the Roomba and more figuring out the human. Uh, we're reminded uh, of our own distinction from uh, automation uh, when we are surrounded by it. The, the question just forces itself in digital conditions. What What is a human being? And um, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it, it, it is already quite dangerous um, to consider things like robot rights when uh, human rights have not uh, been taken to their fullest depth. Uh, so 
it's uh, I'm I'm wondering how how deep to go on this, but um, well, well, I mean, we don't we don't have to go any deeper than you want to go, and I do want to leave time somewhere along the line for you to go into the eight oppositions because yes, 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 yeah, uh, I, um, I would like to do that, um, but uh, I think as deep as I'd like to go is uh, I I would like to mention Pope Francis's work on on all of this because um, he he is arguably uh the the best living Guardini scholar. Uh, he said that if he hadn't become Pope, he would have finished his dissertation on Guardini. Um, and now he has to kind of do it in office. <laughs> but um, so there, there's something, uh, are you familiar with the notion called Catholic social teaching? Yes. Um, not, not deeply, but I, but I do understand the basic idea. Yeah. So there, there are sort of three tenets to it. Uh, the first is human dignity. Um, the second is subsidiarity. And the third is solidarity. Uh, now, human dignity, I think, is uh, it, it comes first for a reason. And that is that um, nobody, no human being can be prescinded from humanity. That is, we, we cannot choose to say, um, to, to exclude a, a group of people from, uh, from humanity, scientifically, socially, uh, it, it, it is a reduction that, um, only leads, uh, to ruin. And in, in our, so an example of that would be when the Nazis tried to call the Jewish people subhuman. Subhuman, yeah. That, or when a... when um, when babies in the womb are considered to be subhuman, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or uh, you know, uh, African uh, slaves shipped over to mm -hmm. uh, America in the eighteen hundreds, mm -hmm. where these these are people who can be bought and sold and. Or the not people, in fact, <laughs> according mm -hmm. to uh, American thought at the time. Uh, yeah, precisely. So, <clears throat> uh, now, uh, even even without any political tensions in mind, uh, we have people who are willing to reduce themselves to machine. There are people who call themselves wetware, or uh, you know flesh <laughs> flesh bots or something like that uh it, it it's a common thought in technological circles to think of human beings as a lesser order organism than our own inventions that our inventions will surpass us um but that is a categorical error they may be able to process information quicker um they may be able to sense more. They may be able to um, move and act in ways that exceed human powers. But um, we still have intellect. We still have understanding. That is to say, we have intelligence. Uh, and I, I believe uh, Dr. McGilchrist uh, pointed to the the category era of artificial intelligence being a, you know, a total misname for uh, 
for what a computer actually does. Uh, what a computer actually does is remember. It is a super remember machine. And that's a that's a basic fact we would do well to uh, understand and it would help us in our ability to tame these things, uh, to bring them, you know, corral them <laughs> before they, they do even more damage than they've already done. Um, so, uh, but yeah, uh, th this human dignity concept, we, we have to be able to assert our own, uh, responsibility. And, and I think so much of this desire to say, oh, well, we can't control the machine and it's here to replace us. It's here to um, be the next stage of evolution, whatever, is really a kind of just intellectual laziness. People would rather not be bothered. Um, and it, the saddest part is when that actually happens in a university where um, this is the place where people have enough leisure time to um, to not be lazy, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wonder if that makes sense. Yes, I'm, I'm with you so far. You, so you talked about human dignity. Did you also want to touch on subsidiarity and solidarity or? Sure. Uh, very briefly, I think subsidiarity, uh, refers to these sort of orders of being where, um, the notion that the the smallest possible group uh, should make uh, a decision that is the one that is closest to an issue who has the most concrete knowledge of an issue should be in responsible for it. Um, it's a statement of uh, the ability of experience to uh, dictate um, action. Like and, in the old days when we had local school boards. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, sure. As an example. Um, and uh, solidarity is that of, you know, if somebody has an issue, uh, we we stand with them. Uh, we've already seen the Writers Guild uh, take a stand against the robots uh, quite effectively. And we're seeing the actors uh, try and do the same. Hopefully that will succeed. Um, but yeah, the robots uh, have very much already taken over. Um, we have to uh, find ways to uh, help the people. <clears throat> so that's, that's an active process that um, Pope Francis has really emphasized in his uh, 10 years as Pope. I don't really want to, like you said, I don't want to get into all the political ramifications of any of this, but it does seem to me that there are some dangers in the solidarity idea of falling over into um, undiscriminating allyship. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, I think the human the human part uh, I want to emphasize the the technological dimension of of all of this um that we really stand to 
destroy all of us if we don't, uh, if we aren't able to take account of the stuff that we built. Uh, you know, Guardini actually relates this in his book, The End of the Modern World. He says, classical man uh, was, you know, made made sort of totems and monsters out of the threats that they encountered in the natural world, the bears, the uh, the lions, etc. But and we built uh, technological safeties uh, to protect us from these dangers. But Gordini says now the dangers arise from within. We are just like that prehistoric person, um, except we've created the dangers ourselves. And just like the uh, the prehistoric person who wears the the skin of the bear that scares him, uh, we become part of the machines that uh, dominate us, and we take on their habits, and we um, do so unconsciously. This is sort of McLuhan's. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has struck me is one of the clear and present dangers of AI is, or AGI, whichever one, is not so much what it might rise up and do against us, but just the fact that we use it all the time means that we're lacking, we're, we're losing our own capacity to think things through and to organize our thoughts and to write out, um, People use it now to write their essays, to right. <laughs> come up with ideas for them and all of this. So we're just sort of giving over our mental capacity to the machinery because then we think, oh, we'll have more time to think about other things. But then we're not thinking about other things and we're using the machines to entertain us while the machine is doing our work. And uh, Yeah, I remember uh, in math class, they used to say, well, you have to show your work because you're not going to have a calculator on you all the time. And they were wrong. I actually do have a calculator on me all the time. <laughs> so jokes on everybody, I guess. Yeah, except for the day that I was walking through the store and all of a sudden all the power went down in the whole city. For some reason, the grid went down mm-hmm. and the, the clerks at the front could easily have added up our um, purchases and given us a receipt, but none of them knew how to add. So, Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> because, because when they went to school because they're younger than you are they had calculators all the time they never had to learn how to add a column of figures and which uh, i don't even think that's the way it's taught anymore uh in the in the the math programs at uh, elementary schools but uh yeah there, there's a new system that i don't understand <laughs> so um but i what you're talking about draws a, a very important fact of of human beings relationship with technology where we are not made clear what its effect on us is until uh it's removed so um when i when i first read McLuhan, i thought about you know a very expensive penthouse suite in you know new york city the the like hundredth floor or whatever uh it becomes much less valuable when the power goes out um, that ele- that elevator doesn't work. And now you have something that has disconnected you from the rest of your surroundings. All of these things depend on a context, as, as Gordini was talking about with, with the fingertip. But the difference 
between, uh, I guess you could say, context provided from God and context provided by humanity is um, one is vouched for without our thinking of it. I think McGilchrist said um, something to the effect of, you know, a human being grows without trying some, something like this where uh, and, and it grows according to a plan that that we don't necessarily decide, um, you know, that that embryo will get a hand and that hand will uh, taking in food over time uh, in the in the body will will turn into a larger hand, a more fully formed, articulated hand. Um, and that's because it's nourished by an all nourishing, uh, ever present figure, uh, a vital force. That vital force only exists in human affairs when we are paying attention to it. And humanity has a really tough time keeping attention on oh, that is we are very easily distracted. Um, uh, are you familiar with the Sebald, uh, the rings of Saturn? Uh, I'm reminded of that book. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a good one. Is Anyways, a, is that a science book or a book no, of philosophy or uh, it's actually, it's, it's a, it's been a while since I've even thought about it. It's a, it's a, W.G. Sebald uh, wrote, uh, I think, around 2000 or so. Uh, this book, uh, The Rings of Saturn, is kind of a... I'll see what Wikipedia describes it as. It's a first-person narrative arc that is the account of a nameless narrator on a walking tour of Suffolk. Uh, that That's not really to describe it. It's Here it is. A hybrid book of fiction travel biography myth and memoir um it's it's a very striking uh i i recommend it to anybody uh take take a look he was um he's a german uh born in 44 and his parents uh were uh holocaust survivors i believe um so all all of this takes place in the context of uh, people building things uh, and um, uh, the the slaughter that can take place without us even noticing mm. as we as we are building. So, yeah. Um, well, I, I appreciate you bringing up the idea of attention and how <clears throat> the world depends on our attention. And that, that's certainly one thing that we've been talking a lot about here. Um, my channel loosely covers the intersection of Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Peugeot, and I would say maybe Paul Vanderclay and Bishop Barron and... Uh, kind of a group like that and uh John Verveke. Yep. Yeah. And John a bunch Verveke. of Canadians, yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and and they all point towards attention. They all have a slightly different perspective on it, but they all point towards attention. Um one of my favorite interlocutors on this channel is a young philosopher named Matthew. And he has this little saying, he says, seeing gathers. 
basically seeing curates our world and what we what we focus on what we see is what brings the world that we live in into being basically um yeah what, and, and you... what we what we see and and what we pay attention to and all the baggage that we come to that scene yes, with yes yes that's what i call the experiential dna that each of yeah. us is loaded with by the time we're adults yeah yeah so we can see a uh you know a flower on a on a table and you know the the botanist or the you know that that person sees oh that's this particular kind of flower what, what's that doing here but then you have a sort of fabric worker or textile person uh who notices the tablecloth and doesn't pay attention to this strange flower uh and yeah it's it's uh this this is the work of sort of gestalt psychology which is in uh all over McLuhan, but uh it's also in in guardini uh in this book on oppositions like i i want to describe this book on oppositions as sort of a a summa of uh guardini's in the in the medieval sense this is a sort of uh his summa on creation on uh and, and we can get into the the different um different oppositions that he brings up but basically there are three that apply that are valid um in general for all existence three that are valid for uh only living things and then two that are really about the oppositions themselves um but um when it comes back to this question of uh that as you say experiential dna uh this is uh there's actually there are cute examples like i gave of the the table with the flower and the, the tablecloth but um when it comes to the world of science i, I want to quote guardini here he says for our question this means the following nothing is more fictitious than the assumption that our seeing and thinking are unprejudiced or the requirement that it should be so that is should we get rid of our dna no uh but he says only human beings in general could be without prejudice and again only with regard to the objective human world but that itself is a prejudice with reference to the world in general this only faces god without prejudice and the human however there is not even man in general there is only the concrete man and they are essentially prejudiced essentially related to an individual world an environment so much so that they have certain aspects of the human world to which that endeavor is directed which is called science that they don't see at all others weakly others strongly but this means too strong an overall ratio this bias works over everything so much so that practice teaches us to recognize the determining character type from the subtle tones of a thought or judgment or preference. So much so that the question arises whether this dependency can be overcome at all. Does worldview go to the core of apparently exact scientific judgments, not ultimately mean the function of a type with all of its social individual components? And he continues, in any case, this much is clear that this dependency goes very far, is infinitely tenacious, 
and the stronger and more inescapable it is, the more naively the claim of non-prejudice is made. The more the criticism of the prerequisites and the course of thinking in general, and then of particular resource meshes is practiced, but the whole sphere of the particular requirements and the concrete research processes remain overlooked because these are on a completely different level than the former. And if they are not refined, they generally exercise their false influence despite the most critical prudence. The question is not whether there are prejudices, but what they are. Not whether the researcher can get rid of prejudices, but whether he has them right. We want to say whether the moment of prejudice has been consciously, critically coped with and placed. So ultimately, Cordini is saying, we cannot erase our experiential DNA. Um, but when we are relating to the outside world, we must present it, whether that's the perspective of a, in, an individual or a group uh, or a nation or uh, a university. Uh, I think he says something to the effect of the individual stands in a topsoil. Um, and the we see the effect. We do not see that topsoil unless we are actively looking for it. So especially in the world of science where the products are intellectual, uh, we really need their sensory backdrop. In fact, their sensory backdrop is is maybe more important than the scientific product itself. When you say the sensory backdrop, what, what do you mean? <clears throat> I, I mean that experiential DNA. Like the, oh, I see. Okay. The, the where did that come from? Who Who is this and how did they arrive? This is the showing of the work, uh, but not, well, so not- Part of what not, I think about with the exper experiential DNA that I've always tried to kind of get an answer to and- I, I can't think it through myself sort of is that it seems to me that we're born with some sort of a words fail. Let me use the word mechanism. I know it's not a mechanism, but something <laughs> inside of us that has like little attachments on it so that as experiences happen, they get attached to this thing where we're, we're integrating all of our experiences because we have experiences, we have relationships, we have conversations, we sing songs, we read books, we listen to messages, we hold hands, we eat, we have, we have all of these things that have to get integrated somewhere in us. Um, I think that um, Dallas Willard says the soul is that which integrates all of these complexities in a person but yeah I, I would say it sounds like you're describing the soul yeah definitely but, but the soul is always kind of gathering or or open to these experiences and so it's always getting built out in a sense so that there's more and more and more of me um more experiences that influence the thought that's coming into my head is influenced by, I mean, the, the words coming into my head from you are influenced by what's inside of me. And then when I speak, my words are influenced by that because I'm thinking about it idiosyncratically differently than you're thinking about it. And so I'm trying to find a way to describe to you what's inside my 
little apparatus <laughs> so that it can hit your apparatus in some way that we can actually communicate, which is kind of a miracle. That Especially since good. neither one of us came up with English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm always wondering about is how does that, um, you know, maybe that is the area where the postmodernists got it right when they said that they're, they're just our perspectives on things. But, um, but in spite of all that, in spite of the fact that we all have all these perspectives, I think you and I would both agree that there is nevertheless something called truth. So, so each of us with our perspective, part of our responsibility is to, to, take that perspective and move it closer to truth, move it closer or allow ourselves to be drawn into the good, <clears throat> to be drawn into the true and the beautiful and the good. <clears throat> be shaped by that. So yeah, this, this really... has a, uh, a resonance with the, the, the Greek word logos, um, which uh, happens to be the, um, the suffix for all of our scientific endeavors in in English anyway we we use the greek mm -hmm. word uh when we're talking about psychology or biology or etc uh that it, it we might as well be saying talk <laughs> by the way there's a funny thing happening now uh on tiktok people talk about book talk or movie talk or all these different fields of uh of interest are being uh, suffixed with the the proprietary TOK of TikTok. Oh, <laughs> oh that kind of talk, yeah. Okay, yes. <laughs> exactly. So uh, that's that's just something funny, but uh, but there there's something uh, powerful about the notion of truth resonating uh, with logos. Um, in a matter that can transcend language uh, or, or languages even. Um, different grammars uh, point us in that direction. So, uh, but the the emphasis on, on, on what you're saying here of this uh, inner and outer thing, is it something that we're not necessarily in in full control over mm -hmm. um like like i had mentioned not neither one of us came up with english uh there are influences outside of us but there are also drives that arise within us um sometimes we can explain them other times we can't but uh those tendencies uh, I'll just quote from Gordini here. He says, I'm not a passive point for external processes, but also, and above all, an origin of internal processes. He says, we have certain internal drives, acts that begin inside. I stand statically in myself as a closed building, but also dynamically as an independent active unit. I do not experience myself as a fragment of existence, but as a whole built from within. I experience myself as concrete, and this concrete stands in itself from outside to inside, from inside to outside. It builds itself up and works from its own source. That means 
it is alive. Um, <clears throat> I, 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 saying that Gordini is a theologian is, is very important because around the time that he began this writing is when he decided to become a priest as well. And he points to something in the Gospel of Matthew in his memoirs that made him uh, come to that decision. He was with a friend in the attic of some summer house in Germany. Uh, and he was talking about this particular passage in Matthew where it says, he who um, holds on to his soul will lose it and he who gives it away will will keep it. Um, and his friend went out to the balcony and he sort of thought about it for a minute. And he says, give up my soul, but to who? And then he thought about the church. Uh, he says, I can't just give it to God because then it would, this would, I would be in danger of inserting myself for that. I need something that can get me out of all of my desire to assert myself. Uh, and the church seemed like that place for Guardini. And he quotes, with all of her concreteness and precision. And the account ends with him saying, and then I went out to my friend and told him, which I think is beautiful because we have this opposition within ourselves. We have an inner and an outer, but we also have the opposition of the relationship between a person and somebody else, me and you, for instance, that's, that's a, an opposition <laughs> like, uh, and any kind of relationship has this push pull, this balance and, uh, okay. Th this is important. So Gordini liked to say about his oppositions that, um, it's not a matter of one against the other or the other against the one or whatever. And it's also not a matter of um, them somehow being synthesized to form a unity. It's not, a, it's not a dialectic. <clears throat> right, right. But rather, uh, there it, it is a unity, a special kind of unity that has a living root to it. Um, and maybe in, in the Greek word, we would have called that its form, morphic. Um, or idos, the idios. Um, and I, I think it's no mistake that Gordini is writing all this stuff at a time where science had abandoned this medieval notion of formal causality. I keep on bringing up the Middle Ages, <laughs> but it's very important. Perfectly was... okay. We're very, very handy with the Middle Ages here. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, Gordini was a Bonaventure scholar. He, he wrote two dissertations on Bonaventure, one about salvation and the other one about Bonaventure's metaphysics. Uh, these three notions, the Lumen Mentis, the Gradatio uh, Enzinentium, and the, uh, there was a third one. I don't remember it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, grades of being, oh, the, inf the influence of sense and motion. This is sounding like uh, Levin for a second. <laughs> Uh, influence of sense of motion, grades of being, and the uh, light of the mind. Yeah, that that's what uh, that's what Gardini wrote on on Bonaventure. 
Um, and so all, all of this is built on a scaffolding of, uh, of Greek philosophy, oddly enough. Um, I really do say oddly. It, it is, it's very mysterious to me how, uh, why, why should this philosophy endure? Why should this, uh, seemingly, you know, of a time thing, uh, still sound relevant today? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if it has a little bit to do with, um, I mean, okay. My, my own, my own bias, my own perspective is that, that throughout history, throughout the lived experience of humanity, since we were created by God, he has been communicating in diverse ways. <clears throat> One of the ways is just the universe itself communicates and, and every living thing tells a story and there are metaphors built into all the beautiful things in the world. And, and so it's no surprise at all that the Greeks would have come up with ideas that are, that are still um, true and beautiful today. If they came to them through that um, being taught by God, basically. And so that experience has been available all through history, but also all through history, mankind has more and more and more closed ourselves off from being open to hearing and understanding that kind of truth. So that's McGilchrist's whole story, you know, that we have right. abstracted ourselves and gotten more up in our own heads and um, unwilling to be open to the mysterious, ineffable, beautiful around us so um so we go back to those people who were open and, uh, you know <laughs> right. and, and could tell us of that truth and certainly i mean it seems to me that um that there's a lot of crossover between many of the greek thinkers and the truths that were revealed in the new testament um and even in the old testament i mean truth yep. truth is truth wherever we find it so so do you want to go over the the eight oppositions? We we have about 10 minutes left. And yeah, yeah. I, I think going one of the big briefly. reasons I want to do this is that I've spent about four or five years on my channel chasing down an idea that I've had for 20, 30 years. Um based on this idea that that the universe itself is like a work of art. Yeah. And and what we've discovered over the many centuries are the, the elements and principles that are a part of every work of art that draw the viewer's eye or draw the listener's ear to, um, to be entranced, to see the beauty of, to come together with. <clears throat> and those elements and principles, the elements are just those things that are part of the work, the line, the size, the shape, and even music has these the line, the size, the shape, the direction, the color, the value, and the texture are part of the work. And then each of those um, responds to a number of principles that, as I've thought about it over many years, are kind of binaries. So they each have a binary aspect to them, but I'm only going to say the one side. And that is unity, 
harmony, contrast, dominance, repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. And they each exist on a kind of a spectrum or a, a polar tension that you could say. And so in a painting, every stroke of the painting is responding to all of those principles in, in the context of that particular stroke and how that leads to the unity of the whole work. And, uh, and then I hear you talking about these eight um, tensions or binaries or polar concepts. And I thought there's some crossover there because if this is true, if these principles are really, really underlie not only um, human life, but also underlie the physics of the universe, come underneath the physics, then I think it's really important that we explore what those what those polar tensions are. So that's my story. Yeah. So uh, Guardini has has eight of them. I'll, I'll go over them. But um, Pope Francis, who I would consider the greatest living Guardini scholar, comes up with them as often as possible. <laughs> he anytime he's giving a talk, he'll say, and that that's a polar tension. <laughs> but He's not necessarily talking about the principle underneath. He's he's maybe saying this is an example of attention. So if, if you read, uh, he has an exhortation called Evangelii Gaudium, and he has these four that he talks about. He says, uh, time is greater than space. So there's a time-space tension, but there's a ranking among them. So time is greater than space. Unity prevails over conflict. Realities are more important than ideas. And the whole is greater than the part. So that's that's Francis uh, having his sort of concrete examples in, in our world. Uh, but yeah, I, I I will bring up these uh, these ones written by Guardini. And I'll, I'll go even further and um, take what a, a 20th century uh, Italian scholar, Guido Somovia, uh, made of them by comparing them to things in Aristotle. So first we have the uh what what Guardini calls the three intra-empirical uh oppositions. Uh and the first one uh, okay uh, I will say <laughs> so these these three are what uh Somovia calls valid in general for existence. These are what he calls the predicamentals maybe in Aristotle. The first is dynamic and static. So something that can uh, be at work, be dynamic, but also stay itself static. Um, the next one, and, and by the way, there, there are German words. I'm, I'm using my own translation uh, just for speed here. Mm -hmm. uh, the next is um, form and abundance or overflow. So you might consider this as shape and matter, perhaps, or uh, something like a figure ground, a, a determinable element, uh, an indistinct determinable element, and a distinct determinable element. So something that has a limit and something that surpasses this limit. Um, the third is a totality and a detail. Um, this is something like Eliot's tradition and the individual talent. It's a gestalt. 
uh, there is a specific particular partial in concrete and a general universal total in concrete. And you can't have one without the other. Uh, the, the examples are the formal cause of the, um, of the tradition um, and, and in a reciprocal way as well. <clears throat> And then uh, so, so those be, are the... before so you before you move on to the next three i just want to throw one yes. in here um <clears throat> in barfield's book speaker's meaning he talks about a, a an opposition or a binary um that really stuck out to me as one that could encompass a lot of different binaries and that is the the uh the tension between accuracy and expression hmm because both are needed. You have to have both. But um, if you have complete accuracy, you have no expression. And if you have total expression, you have you can't count on accuracy. Ah, so this this would have to do with these next three, which have to do with living things. Well, I suppose. But I mean, I'm thinking all also of it in terms of, let's say, um, scientific measurement. Um, but of course that requires human beings, which right. they often re refuse to acknowledge. <laughs> okay. So go for it. The next three. Cool. So the, uh, these next ones he calls, so these are the trans empirical opposites. The first ones were the intra empirical. These are the trans empirical. <clears throat> that is, they, they go to the realm of w beyond what is empirical, um, the first uh, he calls production and disposition. Um, and uh, Guido Somavia calls that the tension between imminent official, uh, sorry, imminent efficient causality and imminent final causality. Um, this, uh, I could actually just go to the chapter because th these oppositions get a, a little uh, prickly. Um, but uh, I have in my own notes here that this is almost a relationship between an artist and their audience. Um, so like something like a, a probe and a teacher. So let me pull up Guardini's description of this. So if I search for disposition in my Google Doc here. So I, I should mention, I have this weird weird document that i've been keeping for years that makes uh google google docs crash every time because <laughs> i ba basically have the german i fully transcribed this book in german in a table on the right and i have an english rough translation on the left paragraph by paragraph and i think the way that google docs has their tables set up it it really does not like this document <laughs> so if i search disposition it's right? a tremendous commitment to this work that you did your own translation of it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, mean, I understand from your conversation before you, you're not a German speaker. So no, not even close. Um, so um, here we go. Okay. This is the first one that he brings up um, in these trans empirical contrasts so yeah he the word in german is gegensatz it it literally means like set against but uh anytime someone's brought it up in english they use the word opposition 
So um, I, I use the words, I, I picked opposition when I first brought this up, um, as others have, but contrast is also used. Um, so uh, I, let, let me introduce the trans-empirical contrast for a second, because it's one thing to say they only account for the living, but it's another to, to describe them as he does. He says, previously, the ones that only apply for being, the intra-empirical opposites lie within the realm of experience. They concern the enantiological relationship in which forces, building materials, processes, and structures of what can be experienced relate to each other. Now we have come across a new fact, what we have called the inner point of the living. How does it relate to what can be experienced? How does this go back to it? How does it come into its own in what can be experienced? The relationship between the realm of experience and the inner point is determined enantiologically, that is, oppositionally. The opposites that unfold in this relationship may be called trans-empirical. The word doesn't exactly hit uh, like most words that come from choice, but because of this appointment, we know what it means. <laughs> um, so let's go to production and disposition. Wait, now I just... I, I found a cool <laughs> cool section here I, I kind of want to quote from. Um, he talks about artists. Let us grasp what is meant where it is particularly clear. Human creation. What does creating mean in the special sense of the word? Thoughts, pictures, deeds, works are created in such a way that their author knows that they rise up from within. There is no ordering of existing material, but rather the creation of something new. Creative thinking is not experienced as processing what is given, but as inner lifting out, ascending. Creative act is something that springs from within, created work presented as new. The results of such production, thought, shape, action, have the character of the new. They were not there yet, cannot be derived from what is available. Before them, we feel something new beginning. An origin has become active. They stand there with an originality like previously unknown things in nature. If you come across such a thing, you are amazed. Ask what it is. Where does it come from? But no one asks whether it is possible because it stands there and has an inner essential possibility, truth. Thus, creations of this kind testify to themselves. They have the power of persuasion through the compelling truth of their being. In Matthias Grunewald's pictures, fingers rise up for a creative reason. You do not realize existing types, but create new ones, open new realms of being. You have sovereignty of being. Gothic architecture is like that at times, and plastic, uh, the people of Shakespeare, the music of Beethoven, the politics of Napoleon. This creation and production seems alive in a special sense of the word. The whole person is involved, right up to the point of agony. Beethoven was terrified when a new work was inwardly announced. The whole of life gathers in such creation. It is an inner receiving uh, and behavior that takes everything up. Hold on. I, I just love reading him. So <laughs> I'm going to the next paragraph because it begins with this sentence. Once our eyes are created. Awesome. Keep going. <laughs> we find something corresponding in the whole area of human life and how physical life grows and grows in conception and birth, how shape and organs slowly form from within. And how the work of man becomes from the first suggestion to the perfect creation. Everywhere we see it protruding from within in such work, brought about by the deep point, by the lap of life. 
Everywhere there is something new, uh, the attestation of which lies in himself and the power of his own truth and being. Every living thing, being, or work, or deed is ultimately something new. In it, what is already available is put together, but something new is created. It does not realize an existing scheme, but represents what has not yet been. Every living thing is only once. Life means creating, and the more creative it is, the livelier it is. The more original, the first jump of the creative ground. Life is fertility, and the livelier life, the greater its power. To present what has not yet been to present what not has not yet been born. The full of action and form is new creation brought out from within. So He's talking about all this new stuff. Then he says, Now certainly there is no such thing as merely productive creation. All creation needs material. The body needs chemical compositions of a certain kind and quantity if it is able to build itself up. Okay, so now I want to talk about, now, now that we know what production is, Beethoven can't just get an idea. He needs to live in Germany at the time, or Austria at the time, wherever he was. He needs that audience. He needs their um, disposition in order to work upon. He can't get, he cannot create ex nihilo. Um, and this points to a, a, a sort of common contradiction that people make about art, that artists are gods. Um, they are not, they are not able to create ex nihilo. They may be pagan gods in the sense that they shape uh, human sense, uh, but this is a, a misuse of the word God, I believe. Um, they are, they have the power to shape human sense because they use human sense as their material, their disposition. And this is where the tension between the idea and the sense of the audience lives, this production disposition. So... As Aristotle says, the cognitive agent is and becomes the thing known, and an artist knows their audience. They, in fact, they sometimes make their audience. So, yeah, that is uh, that's the first one. <laughs> I will be more brief about the next. I think we really just needed to introduce the notion of these uh, trans-empirical oppositions. That is someone who knows something. A scientist can be an artist in this way, a new scientific discovery. Someone who is able to to understand something, to render it intelligible. They are living in a world of people who are having the same sensory experience as they are to a degree. They, they are seeing parts of the picture, but it is the artist or the scientist who is able to articulate it and translate it into a medium in which the people see it intellectually for the first time, despite having lived in it, if that makes sense. So well, by the time sure. I mean, mar marketing, marketing guys that design new products that yes. <laughs> make people hunger for more and more stuff. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well said. Yeah, th that's that's an art as well. Um, and movement, etc. Market research. Correct. And now now uh, robots are able to do that uh, on the newsfeed, not just Beethoven. So. <clears throat> uh, next, uh, we have. Uh, the opposition. Uh, wait, uh, actually, let's go back to efficient and final cause. That that's what um, that's what Guido Samavia equated this to Aristotle. I don't know if I completely agree, but go for it. Anyway, <laughs> the next is uh, rule 
and originality. So uh, a new element and a continuing element. So this sounds a lot like the one that we just talked about. So, but, um, so the, that the continuing element would be the rule and the new element would be the originality. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, and I, I think in, in your earlier talk, you had also mentioned order and chaos. Order and chaos. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, uh, that has a lot to do with this one. And I think. I think this is, I had made a note to myself that I thought this was where accuracy and expression fit in. Yes, this is, when when you had said that, I, I zeroed in on this this one with my okay. eyes and my notes. Yes, <laughs> this this is that one. So this is the, the trans-empirical opposition that, uh, that lives here. Um, so, yeah, let me, let me pull a little, the, I mean, you, you, so you seem to we, understand. We've only one. got like five minutes left, so we probably should. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll just the continue. Yeah. The, the next is uh, imminence and transcendence, which I call percepts and concepts. So this is where uh, something becomes like shiny to us and, and we grasp it and then it becomes something that we can do again later. Uh, it transcends, we, we see the pattern. We sense it and we understand it. Um, but what uh, Somavia says is this is the imminence of life resulting from double causality and the transcendence of life. Uh, big phrase. And then finally, we have the oppositions themselves. Uh, Guardini calls these the transcendental oppositions. The first is affinity and differentiation. Um, Somavia calls this the analogy of being. Uh, or the analogy of proper proportion, the an analogia entis. And then finally, connectedness and discreteness, the unity of being, the university of being, the unitas entis. So you can look at these four-part things and see their affinity and differentiation. Uh, and you can see their connectedness and their discreteness, their their connectedness and their, their separateness. Um, those are those are two different ones. <laughs> he gets to that level of precision in this work that um, still a uh, hundred years later is not properly in English. Crazy stuff. For sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. And what is the name of the book? Uh, the name of the book is uh, The Contrast or uh, Die Gegensatz, The Oppositions. And it's only in German. Yep. Philosophy of the Living Concrete is the uh, the full title of it. Maybe what you've been called to is to publish a translation of this. <laughs> you've already uh, got it done. All you need to do is find yeah. a German speaker to check it over for you. Yeah, I need a couple German friends. I have a I have a, a German speaking friend who's not a native speaker, but yeah, maybe uh, maybe. I think you might be right. <laughs> I mean, you've already got the work done. How hard would it be, right? Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, and then then sometimes it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. somebody, a German speaker could come along. So I, calling all German speakers to this channel, please. Please. <laughs> come alongside um, Peter and help him with this because it would be great to have this translated. I mean... Yep. This falls right in the slot of what all these guys are talking about. Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Pajot, John Verveke, 
Ian McGilchrist. I mean, it it just falls right in the slot. Yeah, I think I think the world needs it. Yeah, that's your calling, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for calling me to be here. I'm I'm very happy to to talk about this anytime. So yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that I that uh, Schindler and McGilchrist uh, summoned me. <laughs> so, well, thanks. and and, I, and I'm also thankful. I can't remember who it was who put me onto you a couple of years ago, but then just recently, another viewer named Elizabeth reminded me about, wow. about you. And that was when I contacted you again, because earlier you had been traveling and it was not possible for you to be here. And That's right. it kind of dropped off my radar. Um, so I just want to end up with one quote that is from a, a book about Guardini, I believe, that was written, I believe it was written by, um, maybe written by Cardinal Ratzinger um, before he became Pope Benedict. Um, the truth about man is essentiality, conformity to being, or better still, obedience to being, which in premise is the obedience of our being before the being of God. Only in this way can one achieve the force of truth. And yeah. when I've been talking about this on the channel prior to this, I've always talked about it as um, Jesus being the truth. Um, that truth is often translated reality. So our task, if you will, or our, our willingness to open ourselves to being um, united with that reality and becoming one with that reality is um, this issue of, of obedience of our being before the being of God, being united to the, the goodness and the being of God. So I, uh, I really like that. I, I'm not sure if it was Guardini that said that or if it was um, Cardinal Ratzinger that said it, but it was in a book about Guardini. So that's amazing. And, and uh, to, to respond to that briefly, it reminds me of something that McLuhan said uh, about the role of the artist. He says, uh, obviously, the business of the artist in the context presented by Joyce is that of an impersonal agent, humble before the laws of things, as well as before his own artistic activity as revealer. He must strip himself of all but his uh, mere agency. And this is in the same essay where um, McLuhan talks about uh, Christ as the supreme artist, quoting Joyce. The light of thy countenance is signed upon us, O Lord, he quotes from the Psalm, uh, Psalm 4. And it's also how Guardini opens his essay on Bonaventure, his, his uh, dissertation. We share the ability to understand with he who is understanding. So when we endeavor to discover truth, we are um, participating in the divine. How beautiful. How beautiful. It's been so great talking to you, Peter. I hope we can talk again in the future. Me too. Thank you. I'm assuming, this is, this is I'm assuming that you, you um, um, participate in that way in your own music with oh yeah absolutely yes yeah <laughs> so if you have any links to your music that you want to put in the description section send them to me email. i will yeah. yeah yeah we have a an album that we released in 2019 which uh 
I kind of think goes to a lot of these themes. So terrific. Okay. Thank you so much. You got it. Wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye.